Hi, and welcome to this latest episode of Sepad Pod. I'm Simon Maybon, and today I'm joined by Sadkin Hamra. Sadkin is a PhD candidate in history at Tufts University, where she focuses on the Middle East, South Asia, the Iran-Iraq War, sectarianism, and Islamism, along with a number of other things, including the state, non-state conflict and violence, intersection of identity, memory, trauma, and politics on local and transnational levels. She's doing some fascinating work, which builds on and draws on various other qualifications and bits of research. She was a doctoral fellow at the Fair Center for Eastern Mediterranean Studies at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. And she is the founder of the Iran-Iraq War Project. I'm really, really delighted that she's here today to talk with us about the wonderful work that she's doing. Satkin, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's wonderful to be here. It's a pleasure, and I'm I'm really looking forward to sort of delving into this really, really interesting um, work that you've been doing and this fascinating collection that you've pulled together, Contextualizing Sectarianism in the Middle East and South Asia, Identity, Competition, and Conflict, which came out towards the back end of, of last year. So really looking forward to diving into that and to, into your work more broadly. So in light of that, why don't we start, as I normally do in these conversations, with just a bit about you and, and your background. How did you get interested in the, in the questions that you're working on today, please? The reason I decided to go in this direction was that I was fascinated by conflict, whether it's state-state conflict or non-state conflict, from a young age. I believe it goes back to my bicultural background. As a kid, on one hand, I had friends whose fathers and uncles experienced the horrors of the Vietnam War. I was a kid of the Cold War. And I also visited Iran during the Iran-Iraq War. So the primary questions I started developing in my elementary school years is, how could people hurt each other so badly? Why do people fall in line with certain rhetoric that pushes them towards certain acts of violence? And this also goes back to friends that I had who experienced the horrors of, of the Holocaust in World War II that I, that I went to school with. Listening to their stories on top of everything else that I experienced, I didn't understand how human nature would allow individuals to go down this path. And the more I visited Iran during the Iran-Iraq war, I noticed more and more that conflicts and wars impacted humanity on the most granular levels, as well as the top down. So my question then became, why and how? And the fact that I was from that, or I am from that region, made me look at it also from a religious angle. What is the role of religion or sex-based identity in exacerbating issues of identity? Meaning, when 50 years ago or 10 years ago, these societies got along so well, what changed? One of the topics that kept coming to mind was religion or sex-based identity and levels of symbolism and stories and myths and these 
you know, the, the deconstruction of humanity and the reconstruction of it in a way that was beneficial for political entrepreneurs, whether they're on a non-state level or whether on the state level. Yeah. And that, that has stayed with me for, for years. And then one of the, the interest in the intersection of memory and trauma and identity and politics also came about from my own personal experiences as well. Again, from a Cold War, and the tail end of the Cold War was my childhood. How did that impact my perception of certain parts of the world? How did the, the stories that I heard from my friends about their fathers experiencing the Vietnam War impact their perception of that region or impact my perception of that region? And on a much more personal level, how did my experiences with the Iran-Iraq War, my family's experiences, impact my perception? Because there's still level of, even though I only visited, you know, I didn't live there, I only visited, I'm certain that it had an impact on me as well. It definitely had an impact on the trajectory of, of my life. So these were questions and these were personal experiences that really stayed with me for years. And a personal story is, one of my closest friends um, in my middle school years was a girl from Baghdad. Now, this would be on the tail end of the the Iran-Iraq war at that point would have been over for a few years. But mm. she was from Baghdad. And I'm originally from Tehran, where I was born. And my parents left more than 40 years ago. On one hand, when she came to my house, she was fearful of my family. And when I visited her house, even though my family did not, we did not have any form of embedded messaging in my family about dislike or hatred about any individual, but because of my own experiences visiting Iran and being in the bomb raids and, and the missile strikes, it still had a um, silent impact on me. And when I entered her house, I did not know what to expect. They were the loveliest people in the world. I absolutely love them. So then the question becomes, how do people who have so much in common and they're just normal human beings end up having these feelings of slight trepidation when they want to enter each other's homes? Mm-hmm. It's, a con- it's a result of the intersection of memory, of trauma, and of how political entrepreneurs utilize those situations to cultivate such feelings. And then the manipulation of certain types of identity to exacerbate conflicts for their benefit. And, and so that, that's the personal reason why I followed and you know, I entered this field and I slowly moved, um, trying to move forward in it and hopefully have at least a, a droplet in understanding um, in, in this area. On a professional level, um, I was lucky enough to work with some amazing professors and colleagues from a very young age, whether it was an undergrad as a political science student, a master's in international relations or public administration, taking some short courses at the Naval Postgraduate School and here now um, at Tufts. And the idea was, okay, so I'm looking at my personal experiences and the questions that it gave me. Now, how do I find them and expand understanding of these nuances? So the more I was reading about them, the, the it heightened my level of intrigue 
into sex-based identity and how it has evolved in the last 40, 50 years. And what does that mean? How does that, what, what does that um, evolution actually mean? And what are the threads that have impacted the changes and continuities that brought the region to where it is today? And I think what my, in my humble opinion, I think looking at it from an interdisciplinary transnational approach can provide one beneficial lens into looking at this really complex topic. And I, taking that into consideration, I was lucky enough to have the support of several different departments and offices um, at Tufts to be able to organize a conference in 2018 that did just that in essence. It brought together people, practitioners and uh, academics and different um, points of their careers to come together to try to give a um, interdisciplinary and transnational uh, approach to discussing uh, sectarianism and what it means for the greater Middle East. And when I when I say the greater Middle East, I'm including Dulles's uh, definition of the greater Middle East, which includes Pakistan and, and Afghanistan within that uh, within that definition. And in a very long explanation on how I got here, um, it's both you know professional and and personal. Yeah, it, it sounds it. And it sounds like the personal is deeply political in the sense of wanting to understand and reject the quote-unquote ancient hatreds narrative that is so pervasive in certain circles. Uh, exactly, because it's, it's not. It's the manipulation or the instrumentalization of those narratives by political entrepreneurs in which they deconstruct communities or deconstruct senses of identity and they reconstruct them and, and, and then instrumentalize those sections of identity, I think, to advance their strategic interests. Yeah. And it could be on any level. It doesn't have to be state actors. It could be non-state actors on any level as well. Yeah, exactly. But it's it's fascinating that it, it comes out of, of your own lived experience, your own... Um, yeah, your own interactions with people, your own sort of ways of navigating and negotiating the sentiments that you were exposed to and also sort of co-opted into, if that makes sense, in a in a non-judgmental way. No, absolutely. And I, I would, you know, the experiences and the conversations that I've had with people since, you know, the early years have been key to me seeking to create bridges between communities and bridges of understanding and saying that that it is not ancient animosities. If I want to just bring it into the region where I'm originally from, it is not just based on these two people hate each other and that's it. Or, for example, Catholics and Protestants just hate each other and that's it. It is not. It, these are identities that were, in essence, capitalized on and strategically utilized in order to advance strategic interests of certain key players, regardless exactly, of yeah. you know who they are. Yes. Exactly. And I think that's really commendable that you're you're doing that 
based on the sort of the personal journey that you've been on and the the political and the and the sort of the intellectual journey that you're on now it all sort of is deeply intertwined and it's it's a really fascinating journey that that you're on and you're you're doing some really really fascinating work thank you i appreciate that it's a very smooth or very clunky i perhaps should say a, a clunky way of getting to your um your wonderful edited collection contextualizing sectarianism in the middle east and south asia identity competition and conflict so can you tell us a little bit about the the sort of the genesis of this then and and what it's trying to do i think you've sort of hinted at 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 the broader aspirations of your research and the the things that you are wanting to achieve by bringing together people working on the the greater middle east but if you can just say a little bit more about the the book and the 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 ideas that were going into it in a bit more detail please Yes, absolutely. So the book actually stems from a conference that I organized uh, with a friend of mine, uh, Neha Ansari, in 2018, titled Explaining Sectarianism, Community, Competition, and Conflict. Um, this conference was held at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy um, at Tufts University. And from that conference, um, we decided or I decided to create the um, edited volume. And some of the speakers were uh, gracious enough, or most of the speakers were gracious enough to um, want to have their papers involved in this edited volume. Um, and it, as a result, we were able to bring our collective efforts together to, to bring this project to fruition. And, and if I may say, I am enormously grateful to all of the contributors of the volume because you know, in all honesty, without their, their invaluable intellectual contribution, this project would not have been able to come to fruition. And, and this was predominantly done during the, the COVID years. Right. And, okay. and, you know, yeah, so it was, it was wonderful that we were able to come together to, to make this happen. Were you able to get people physically in a room or was this one of the, the many online events that you, um, well, that we all having to do at that point? No, in 2018, we had the conference in, in person at the Fletcher School. Okay, so it was just then, it was, the, the writing process was COVID. The writing process was COVID okay, and a little post-COVID, yes. So the writing process, and everybody was so busy with, you know, many things going on simultaneously because of COVID. But, you know, the authors, my co-authors were kind enough to, to really both put in the time and effort on their chapters and to, you know, bear with me as I, you know, slowly tugged ahead to, you know, to bring this book um, together. Gotcha. Well, it's wonderful. It's a really interesting collection of essays and there's some, there's some really great detailed dives into, into contexts that, that are largely sort of ignored there are some that are topics that have received scholarly attention but but benefit from a different lens um and there's just some really fascinating essays in terms of the the ways in which you tackle these questions of sectarianism um counterterrorism which i thought was actually a really interesting way of of looking at some of the questions um politics theology 
space and the the role of external actors as well. So in terms of bringing the essays together, were there some overarching questions that you were trying to get at um, that were trying to unify the, the different contributors? Or was it a case of you had these broad interests in challenging the ancient hatreds narrative and trying to understand the politicization of this difference and then people were free we, to interpret in their own ways. I wanted to provide a, uh, a an opportunity to examine it through both a modern historical um, modern historical context as well as um, looking at it through a uh, socio political and more contemporary context. And what I wanted to do was to bring people in with diverse backgrounds and then open the door for them to really. Explore it and share their research through their own eyes. Yeah. Okay. So that would facilitate the ability to create more of a, a, a true um, dive, you know, give diverse voices to this topic and to give it an, an opportunity to be um, fundamentally interdisciplinary. Well, I think you've achieved that. Um, I was just thinking. And looking at, at the book earlier, in terms of the disciplinary sort of grounding, and it's very much a Middle East studies rather than a, a politics book or a sort of a religious studies book, if you will. It's it's bringing together the different disciplinary approaches to the study of of difference, essentially. So I think in that sense, yeah. you've uh, you've done a great job. Thank you, thank you. Because the the authors of the volume include senior and junior academics, yeah. practitioners, and you know some graduate students. And and the key to all of it, I think, the commonality exists when we were all seeking to deconstruct popular misconceptions uh, regarding the complexities associated with sectarianism and its long term impact. Exactly. Yeah, and I think it's really important. I think. One of the things I like most about the volume is that you push in in different directions as well. So the the collection begins with a chapter on South Asia. So Unraveling Sectarianism in South Asia by Isha Jalal, which is a really yeah. interesting way of of looking at the questions that that many of us have been looking at in a different context, which I think is a useful pedagogical and intellectual way of helping us to reflect on um, interesting and important things through looking at those things in different contexts. And that's not to diminish the importance that they have in those other contexts, but as scholars working on a particular region, it's sometimes a valuable exercise to look at those things in other contexts to help us to shed light on and to think about those things in new and different ways. I agree completely. And and uh, Dr. Jalal's research on on this topic, can if, if we were to dive into it, it, it goes back. She's a historian, and it, and it can go back um, and examining the changes and continuities that brought the subcontinent into where it is today, and then its uh, diverse relations with its neighbors. And that's where I, she has actually, she's actually my, my uh, PhD advisor. And she has given me a, an opportunity to really examine the topic of sectarianism 
not just in South Asia, where I focus on Pakistan, but across the greater Middle East and at depth and level that um, it, it's quite interesting. And it, it's her it, it, it's her research as well that also has been a motivating factor for me to continue to, to pursue this the way that I have been and to look for um, to look for bridges and to look for levels of complexity and nuances where perhaps um, one would not generally be able to find them. Yeah, I, I concur. And I think it's a really important uh, thing to do generally. But this is a, a really interesting chapter that helps us to do it in exactly that way of finding nuance in ways that that we don't necessarily recognize by looking outside, we're able to, to remind ourselves of some of the subtleties and intricacies. And in and yes, of itself, yes. it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Yes, and in that region, thank you so much. And in that region, most life exists in nuance. Most life does not really exist in the black and the white. It exists within that line or that space between black and white or um you know, like a firm yes or a firm no, for example, it exists within that gray zone, exists within that nuance. Mm. And I, and I, my research, and I'm hoping with this book and uh, the work of all the um, amazing co-authors is to really be able to explore different levels of nuance that exist and open the door to uh, further work and looking at the region by looking for nuance and exploring it and understanding the complexities by looking at the black and white and the space in between from a transnational interdisciplinary approach because the region, the, the, the states and the nations of that region have really coexisted on a transnational level for centuries. Hmm. So what, for example, impacts one nation or one state in, uh, in that region will trickle to another part. So it provides a more broader lens to look at it while simultaneously looking at the granular points that would often be overlooked, but in the long term are really impactful. Sure. Yeah, I think that's that's fair and and very important. And it, it leads me on to to the next chapter that I wanted to touch on, which is your chapter. And I think when I've had discussions about sectarianism broadly, there are all these questions about the key sort of turning points in terms of, well, what year did, what year really mattered? What, what year was it that, that really points to the, the politicization or the geopoliticization of, of sect-based difference? Was it 2011? Was it 2003? Or was it 79? And when we talk about 79, one of the things that is sometimes missed is the, the topic of your chapter here, uh, which is chapter three of the book titled Understanding the Long-Term Impact of Mobilizing Militant Islamists in the Soviet-Afghan War, Strategies of the United States, Saudi Arabia, and Iran. And it is a really important area, I think, looking at, at what happened in Afghanistan. And yet it's often sort of marginalized. And what you do in this chapter is really bring it to the fore as a as a point of really important um, sort of analysis and a real important event in and of itself with 
trans-regional repercussions and reverberations. So can you tell people who've not had the chance to read it as yet what what you're doing in the chapter, please? Uh, sure. I, in essence, I'm. my argument is that the Soviet-Afghan war was not only significant uh, because there was a proxy war between the United States and the Soviet Union, but it, that it was quite significant from a sectarian perspective as well because... Um, you know, when I was doing research on it, I, I found evidence that the Mujahideen was divided along Sunni and Shia lines. Mm-hmm. And the Sunni and the Shia were generally not, not 100% of the time, but they were mostly not fighting with each other against uh, the common enemy, which was for them the Soviet Union. And so the Mujahideen were, fighters were divided along distinct sectarian lines of Sunni fighters and Shia fighters. The Sunni Mujahideen were under the banner of Peshawar 7, and the Shia fighters were under the banner of Tehran 8. And, for example, under uh, in the banner of the Tehran 8, there is a group of the Fatimayun division. And they predominantly consist of the Hazara community, a minority Shia community in Afghanistan. They not only fought within the context of the Soviet-Afghan war, but they also fought for Iran in the Iran-Iraq war because they were they had a skill set necessary for certain climates and they volunteered uh, in order to fight within those climates against the Iraqis. Currently, that division still exists and they're an arm of uh, Iran's uh, security apparatus and they fought in, in Syria. So they're still um, an important member of um, Iran's um, security system. So what I argue is that both Iran and Saudi Arabia instrumentalized Islam for strategic purposes. So both in the context of the Soviet-Afghan war and also they strategically used their specific sects to advance their interests and level of influence among members of their respective Islamic sects within Afghanistan. So in essence, they created two levels of us versus them, an in-group, out-group paradigm, one against the Soviets and the other against each other. And when I mean each other, I don't necessarily mean just against Saudis or against Iranians, but against this wider group that's now been constructed, right? It's Sunnis and Shias. But it's not for, you know, ideals because of ideological incompatibility or some ancient hatred, because just a couple, just a short time before, they were allies under the Twin Pillar policy, and they've worked together um, for decades. And it's, it's, I argue that it's that this arena contributed to the fomentation of sectarianism for strategic non-ideological purposes between facilitating the creation of transnational Sunni and Shia communities, which also not only impacted Afghanistan at that time, but it also impacted Pakistan. And it had a wider regional influence that the region is still grappling with today on different levels. Yeah, I think that's that's really clear that the reverberations continue to be felt. But I think... Absolutely. One, one of the things I really like is that you, you go beyond what is typically associated as, as the region, what people typically understand by Middle East. And yet 
highlight the complexities and the intricacies and the interconnected entanglements of Pakistan, Afghanistan, and um, and beyond, for that matter. And that we can't necessarily understand the intricacies of all of the things that are going on without looking at some of these things on what are often reduced to sort of peripheral regions. And yet those peripheries are central in shaping the dynamics of, of much as what is happening today. Actually, for if you look at the region for centuries, ideas pass through porous boundaries and borders. Concepts pass through porous boundaries and borders, whether it was as a result of religious pilgrimage or uh, merchants or you know, adventure seekers, what have you, the region has always been interconnected on a transnational level. So I, it's it's not it's not new to, for example, the last forty years. This has existed truly in that wider region for centuries, and it. So it's important to examine it, to examine current circumstances in that region from the same lens that this is a continuity for the region. And going back to the indefinite period of time, for example, if you were to look at, uh, this is a little, you know, a little deviation from the topic, but if you were to look at the subcontinent going back to the Delhi Sultanate, you would still see the transnational connections between the different regions and the influence that it had on on the religions religiously and culturally and economically, and this has continued uh, to today. So then when you look at it from the lens that I'm interested in, in sex-based identity and its impact on conflict and vice versa, it, it's important to see, okay, what happened in Afghanistan and how is that impacting Egypt? What happened in Iran? How is it impacting Pakistan? Or you can you know, take it however types of points of, of um, geographic points in, in, in the region, because it is it is a part of the, the the conversation that I was having earlier about nuance. It's this underbelly that exists in um, some can say it's a, it's a beautiful underbelly or it's a not so pretty underbelly, depending on the the circumstances. But it's important to to look at it like that if you want to understand. In my humble opinion what are the drivers that are changing or influencing the region um, from this perspective? You're not going to find many disagreements from me or indeed many others, I would I would guess. The nature of these entanglements are absolutely fascinating and I've thoroughly enjoyed reading the the wonderful collection that you've, that you've edited, but also our conversation just now. Satkin, it's been a real pleasure. So thank you so much for your time and thank you and congratulations again on the book. It is wonderful. And I'm going to be uh, very much looking forward to seeing what happens next with your research and, and where it all goes. Thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure to speak with you today. And thank you for the opportunity to not just share my work, but to also bring light into the amazing research that my co-authors um, have done and are doing.
That's very gracious of you, and you're certainly right. They've done some wonderful work. I do encourage everyone to check out this wonderful edited collection published by Routledge titled Contextualizing Sectarianism in the Middle East and South Asia, Identity, Competition, and Conflict. So do check it out. Huge pleasure chatting with you just now. Thank you so much, Sadkin. Thank you, Simon. I appreciate your time. A huge thanks to Sadkin for her time just now. It's been a real pleasure chatting with her. The book really is wonderful. Do check it out if you can. And as always, a huge thank you to you for listening. Until next time. <laughs>